you want to get out your sermon outline. It says, Restoration in the Kingdom. We've come to one of those hard passages that pastors don't like to preach on. And it's not hard because it's hard to understand. It's hard because it's easy to understand. We just don't like what it says. So we need to read it carefully and examine it carefully because it's Jesus who is teaching us, not just our children. So if you turn with me to the middle of Matthew chapter 18, we'll be starting at verse 15 and reading through verse 20. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. As always, listen carefully. This is the word of the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. And again, you've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. And it's hard not simply because Jesus has the ability to say so much in so few words. It's hard because our wills aren't easily bent to obedience. We want to listen to our own hearts instead of yours. We thank you for this word. And we pray that you would, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, enable us to bow our hearts to its authority. And we pray as well, Lord, that you would willingly seek, that we would willingly seek the best for others, even when they have offended. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever dropped your phone? The smiles tell me that many of you have enjoyed that experience. I read an article about another pastor who dropped his phone. And in the article he says, While heading out the door of a friend's house, I felt it slip out from under my arm. And then came the sickening sound. Splat as it landed flat, but underneath the splat sound was a definite clink. I didn't have to look. I knew when it hit that the screen on my iPhone was shattered. Oh no, my friend cried out. Maybe it's okay. No way, I said. It's cracked in a jillion pieces. Well, a jillion was an overestimate, but it was definitely shattered. Thankfully, the phone still worked, and I found some clear packing tape to hold it together and protect my fingers. So what do you do when your phone looks like a mess of fractured glass? Well, there's several options. First, you can buy a new one, no matter what the cost, even if you're not in your upgrade window. 
But have you priced that option? It's ridiculously high. Besides, two newer versions of the iPhone are supposed to be coming out soon. Doesn't matter when you buy it, there's two more on the way, all the time, forever. Okay, you could buy one today, and tomorrow somebody will say, well, you know, the new one's coming out, and it's just the way it is. So maybe I should wait. Second, I could wait for my upgrade window and get a new one, but that's a, that's a few weeks away. You know, and there's those new phones coming out, and it seems ridiculous to pay such a high price for something that will be two versions behind in a few months. Maybe I should wait. Third, perhaps I could just use another phone. Maybe not so many features, but it'll still make calls and send text messages. But I use my phone for so many regular things, address book, email, flight schedules, weather, Bible software, Facebook, Skype, notes, camera, uh, copying receipts, calendar, Twitter, Evernote, and alarm clock. And he says, yes, I use every single one of those every single day. So maybe I should wait. Fourth, Maybe I could switch to another carrier, you know, start a new contract with them, get the latest Android phone that seems to be hotter with more features, cancel my own old service in a few weeks. It's a great idea, but I have to learn a whole new phone system. And I have to transfer tons of data, and I wouldn't have some key apps. Maybe I should wait. He says, well, I made it less than a week. My eyes were watering from trying to read the screen. My text messages had all sorts of uh, missed letters and typos and the weird autocorrect guesses for my typos that were automatically fixed and made no sense. So I couldn't wait, and I didn't choose to do any of the four options. Instead, I looked up a repair company. Turns out it's only two blocks from the office. I gave them 90 minutes, and I had my iPhone looking as good as new, and it worked flawlessly. It was out about 100 bucks. Ouch. But after a week of eye strain and embarrassing typos, I was happy to have my old digital brain uh, back in tow. And instead of rushing out to get the new model because the old one's screen was fractured, I chose a novel idea in today's world. I paid the price to repair it. So what does this have to do with anything spiritual? Simple. Fractures happen in almost every kind of relationship. And our choices are very similar to the four choices about your phone. Bottom line, we're tempted when there's a relationship fracture to just go get a new version. A friend, a spouse, a church, a club, a business partner. You name the relationship, you know what I mean. But the cost is high. And the ethics are questionable. Trading in the old version for a new model is frequently practiced in relationships. What follows, however, is that floating debris of broken relationships that we've left behind. And this debris washes back up on the shore of our daily life and pulls at our hearts and intrudes on future relationships. And none of this even deals with the spiritual issues involved in abandoning relationships in ways that displease and dishonor Jesus. So whether the fractures with a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a business partner, a close friend, or a church leader, or the church itself, our choices are similar. 
I can simply go get a new fill-in-the-blank with your, whatever your appropriate term is. But will that really heal the fractures in my heart? Will that really help me or the other person get on with our life? Will I simply add another layer of debris that will wash up on the shore of my life, limit my future, and dishonor my relationship with Jesus as one of his followers? It's not to minimize the hurt caused by those fractures in our relationships. You know, when, fracture, when relationships are shattered, when they're fractured, deep wounds can be left behind. And repair isn't easy, and it's costly too. And relationships are never exactly the same because that wound has to heal. But isn't that what God calls us to do? Will our wound ever really heal if all we try to do is forget the pain and leave the person behind who caused it? Colossians 1 teaches us that God paid the price to reconcile us to himself at great cost. And now our Father calls us to be agents of reconciliation in our own individual lives. And whether it's in a relationship with brothers and sisters who've sinned against us, or marriages caught in conflict or apathy, or disagreements caused by prejudice or bigotry, or even with our enemies. For Jesus' healing to be redemptive, we have to make that mission personal. And we don't know when that ultimate time is that we get our relationship upgrade and all of our relationships are perfected in the fully realized kingdom of God when the Lord comes in new heavens and new earth. However, we do know that in order to fix what is shattered, that we're called to fix what is shattered rather than simply trading in what's broken for a new model until those same fractures occur again and we can leave behind more relational debris in the water that we know is going to wash up again. We're called to fix what is shattered. So how do we do that relationally? How do we fix what is shattered relationally? Well, that's the main point of our passage this morning, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. The focus of Jesus' whole instruction uh, throughout Matthew 18 is our relationship with one another in the church. What are the proper relationships between members, between citizens in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus tells his disciples, and, and Dave went over this last week, um, if you're really going to be great in my kingdom, you need to look out for others in the sense of not causing them to stumble in their walk of faith. You need to live your life in such a way that it's not an obstruction to them living the Christian life. You need to make sure you're not throwing up obstacles in front of other believers as they try to grow in grace. In other words, it's not good enough to just think about what's good for you. Because now, by grace, you're part of the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you've got to think about the needs of the whole family, not just your own needs. What's in the best interest of the whole family? And that's what sets us up for this discussion here in the middle of Matthew 18. And the discussion is about what we call church discipline. So let's start by looking at that. We're going to start by looking at the necessity of discipline. The necessity. That should be the first blank in your outline. 
I did the outlines late, so I'm not even <laughs> sure what's there. But we'll start at verse 15. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remember the guy who wrote this, Matthew, was a tax collector. Don't forget that. Church discipline is considered outmoded in our day, old-fashioned. We need to be convinced that it's still needed. Yet even a casual look at the evangelical church in America, much less the broad uh, circle of Christian churches, will demonstrate that missing church discipline, the so-called third mark of the church, has left much of the Christian community looking more like the world than like the people of God. In the light of this, it really shouldn't take much to convince us, uh, convince the church to restore church discipline to its position as one of the marks of the church. Unfortunately, that's not the case. But I want you to consider at least two reasons for the necessity of church discipline. And the first one is Christ commands it. The first one should be enough, right? Christ commands it. The imperatives in the words of Christ to his church leave no question what the Lord of the church wants. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. So you have five imperatives or commands there that Jesus directs the church to engage one another in discipline. Go tell, take, tell, and finally let him be. Those are active terms. And you notice he doesn't limit this just to pastors or elders or deacons. He begins with the singular you and then moves to the plural, the church. So ultimately, the church as a whole has the responsibility to be involved in disciplining the members. Now, if this were the only occasion the church discipline is mentioned, it'd be enough. But we see Paul addressing a number of New Testament churches, giving instructions on church discipline. He told the Romans to watch out for those causing dissension, Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. He rebuked the Corinthians for tolerating uh, immorality among their members and to immediately take action in disciplining the particular member. He told them in 1 Corinthians 5, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's an old-fashioned way of saying, you know, a little bit of sin starts to spread throughout the church. Thessalonians are warned to deal with those who didn't obey the apostolic instruction. 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Paul told Timothy in his pastoral charge to publicly rebuke spiritual leaders that refuse to repent. 
1 Timothy 5. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. On the island of Crete, Titus got instructions about church discipline. Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And five of the letters to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3 contain rebukes and a, and a sort of a general upbraiding of the church because some of these churches have tolerated both false teaching and immoral behavior. And they failed in church discipline, and so they get rebuked by Christ himself. So the first thing is that Christ commands church discipline. But second, the nature of the church requires it. The nature of the church requires it. We can't presume upon the spiritual condition of the church. You're part of the body of Christ. And therefore, you have responsibility for the overall health of the church just as much as any of the officers of the church. And persistent sin tolerated in one member can influence the same sin in others. So one of the steps in the process is to tell it to the church. In other words, the church, though loving every member, recognizes this leavening effect of sin. And singling out one member is only done as a last resort, but it's done because of the damaging effects of unrepentant sin in the body. I believe that the low view of the church today is symptomatic of neglecting to discipline members caught up in persistent sin. And somebody asked me, how much do you do this? And I said, yeah, we do it. But to be honest with you, we're probably running about 50%. The person looked at me and said, that's about 50% more than my church. I was like, Okay. But his response, and I think many people's response is, you know, we're all sinners. And that's true. And we need that reminder. But what is spoken of in this text? If your brother sins against you. It seems to be something that's causing a, a doctrinal breach in the body or is uh, marring the church's testimony or it's creating disunity or division or factions. This level of seriousness warrants our attention. It's a serious passage. And having said that, you have to realize you can't deal with another sin if you fail to deal with your own. Personal purity has to precede engaging others to deal with their sins. Dr. John MacArthur uh, wrote, A believer who is not concerned about his own purity will have no willing obedience to help protect the purity of the church. The lack of church discipline in our day can usually be traced back to neglecting one's own spiritual disciplines to grow in grace and holiness. So Christ's command should be a wake-up call uh, for each of us to realize that as part of the body of Christ, we have this responsibility for guarding our own spiritual lives, 
about helping each other to reflect the image of Christ. We're called to be a holy people throughout the New Testament. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, both personally and corporately. So we can't just brush off Christ's command as though it applies to all of you and not to me. You know, most of the time, the need is not to bring the issue all the way to the church. But most of the time, it's just the concern of one Christian for another, exhorting them, admonishing them, explaining from the scriptures, calling uh, that brother or sister to repentance. Most of the time, it's just one of you meeting with another one of you and encouraging them to repent and believe and to obey through the scriptures. So these verses introduce us to the necessity of church discipline, but they also give us the process of church discipline. The same verses uh, tell us the how. So we often say, when all else fails, read the directions, and the words of Jesus here give us clear directions on the process of church discipline. And in that process, the first step uh, comes to us, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So this calls for the type of fellowship where people can honestly talk to one another about their differences and shortcomings and sins. So when I sense their sin, to take action is actually a loving act. You can talk to any marriage counselor. They know where wrongs have taken place in a marriage, and there's no communication about it. That marriage has just started on a downward slope heading towards failure. Because wrongs happen in every marriage and we've got to talk about them. But it's, it's to be private. That reproval is private. The person who feels offended, they may, be, they may have just simply misunderstood. And so it's a time to gather information and to learn. When approached by a fellow member, of the body of Christ about any matter, uh, Matthew tells us here in this passage that we have a responsibility to listen. It says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. When confronted, my first tendency is to think, here we go again, quickly followed by raising up all of my defense mechanisms. I immediately want to justify my actions. And learning to listen stretches me. A good way to listen is to summarize to the person what he said. Simply, you know, so what I'm hearing you say is, and asking them to correct that summary. I want to make sure that I, they know that I've really listened to them. Once in a staff meeting, I was upset about some things that had happened uh, in our church. You have to understand who's the biggest critic in the church. Biggest critic about the music, about the worship, about the sermons, about the people, about the officers, about the pastors, about just about anything and everybody, I'm at the top of the list. You are amateurs. I am a professional critic. Probably is awful. But we had a staff meeting, and I didn't think we had done a very good job, and I was irritated, and I wanted the other pastors to easily perceive my irritation. So I responded strongly and firmly. 
That sounds better than I was a jerk, strongly and firmly. <laughs> and later that day, Dave Dorse came to me and said, Doc, I'm not sure you understand how that went. And he explained how they perceived my words and actions, and I immediately saw that I had overreacted. And I had to go to each of the pastors and apologize. And they were all very gracious about it. But his reproof brought direction to me. It strengthened my relationship, first of all, with him because he cared enough to confront me and allowed me to mend fences with the other pastors. And those kind of actions should just be part of how we do business. But honestly, that doesn't always work. Sometimes I can be pretty stubborn. Hard to believe, I know. And on those extremely rare occasions, you have to move to step two. Step two is, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if the first step doesn't bring the needed response, it's time to involve more people. And the new people there aren't to substantiate our complaint, but to bring new uh, objectivity, new eyes, so to speak, uh, new spiritual insight. And the emphasis is still on listening. God wants us to make an effort to understand what's going on, what's being communicated. But the risk is greater now, because although moving into a group process is scary, it improves the attention level. And the winning of a brother or sister is not apt to be a simple one-time uh, contact, but more likely a series of contacts, because restoration takes a lot of time and nurture. And this is the hardest step, to be honest with you. And it's often the most telling. If that person understands why you're involving others, they'll take your concerns far more seriously. But if they get angry that you've involved others, it's much harder to get them to hear your concerns. In fact, they'll often accuse you of sin for having involved other members of the church. And so you need to be careful here. You don't just show up with others. You let them know you're bringing others with you and why they're coming along. And if he or she still agrees to meet, that's a good sign. But to stay with our scenario, I might get angry and defensive and refuse to listen to even them. And so in that case, you move to step three, which is if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. In Jesus' time, there was not yet a structured uh, local church as we know today. Most of his instructions are actually based on the synagogue and uh, on the temple. So the church, by the way, that word church, first used here in Matthew 18. So it doesn't really have the form that it's going to take in Acts and in all of the epistles. But it aids us in understanding that the principle of communicating a situation requiring discipline to the larger body, uh, that principle is important. I'm not sure there's only one way to, quote, tell it to the church. Scripture seems ambiguous about this. When that happens, I sort of lean towards flexibility and how to carry out those principles. Thus, in our church, we use the full session, the Board of Elders, and uh, one or two cases uh, come to us every year where it's gone past those steps. I usually were aware of other things going on, um, but the time it gets where the whole session has to act, 
couple times a year. <clears throat> Not looking for more than that. And in those cases, the elders work pretty close with the people involved, usually involve some sort of counseling, mentoring, teaching, further engagement in the life of the church. We only reveal the names of the people involved in those extreme cases involving excommunication. Regretfully, I know uh, sometimes I have to tell you what you already know, that our church is not untouched by tragedy or by sin, and some of our families are in crucial struggles. And you need to know that in those cases, your elders are concerned, and they come with two hands outstretched, one of grace and mercy towards healing, and one of the unchanging standard of God's word. And when you're aware of those situations, which you might just because you have relationships in the church, I would ask you to love those people, to pray for them, to abstain from judgment during the process, to pray for the elders who are making difficult decisions. But sometimes we have to make those difficult decisions and we move to step four, which is, and if you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is excommunication. When you join the church, you become a communicant member. Thus, excommunication is removing your communicant status. Essentially, we're saying that the profession of faith we heard from you when you joined the church was a false profession. We treat that person as an unbeliever because he or she is not walking as a believer. It means to keep loving them as Jesus loves sinners to reach out to uh, her and witness, but not to relate to her as a member of the body of Christ. It means that any further interactions with him is focused on talking to him about Jesus. And like all evangelistic outreach, the goal is to bring a soul to Christ and bring them back into the body of Christ. So that's the process. But what's the point? What's the purpose of discipline? For here, we need to step out of the passage a little bit. We're going to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's the WCF there in your outline. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30, paragraph 3, gives us five purposes for church discipline. There it says, I'm going to read it to you, church censors, censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. So, five purposes there. One, restoration to the body of Christ through the gaining of the offending brother. Two, deterring others in the body of Christ from committing similar offenses. Three, purging the leaven, as I said, an old-fashioned way of saying maintaining the purity of the church because it's the body of Christ. Four, vindicating the honor of Christ and the profession of the gospel of Christ. And five, preventing the wrath of God upon the church for not maintaining the purity of the body of Christ. 
Failure to exercise church discipline endangers the whole church. You could probably summarize all of those by saying, you're concerned for the soul of the sinner and the health of the church. Finally, and I struggle with what word to choose for this next point, because I had three, and I think they all fit. So I called it the authority for discipline, and then I changed it to the assurance uh, for discipline, and then I thought maybe the ratification. Uh, any of those work, but we'll stick with the first one. It's the easiest. So turn to verse 18 and the authority for discipline. The reason why Jesus is so insistent on this process of church discipline is because he's given such authority to his church and delegated to it the power to bind and loose. That doesn't mean the church authority always follows the will of Jesus or that Jesus always acts the way the church determines. But it does show the high regard that Jesus has for the church because it's the company where Christ is present and the Father's at work. Now, this is a great example of our need to study and understand the context. I tell my students all the time, first rule of understanding the Bible is context is king. There are scores of sermon on prayer based on the wording of these verses. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. At first glance, it looks like Jesus is endorsing prayer offered in groups of two or three. And promise that if the Christians agree together about a prayer request, that somehow they're going to bind the Father in heaven. Now, good sense, if nothing else, should drive us to scrutinize the context of these verses. After all, if two or three Redskins fans agree to ask God for victory in an upcoming game against the Cowboys, and a few Cowboy fans pray for a Redskin defeat, which group is God bound to answer? I hear from all the fans, you know, and the Giants fans, neither of them. Um, the problem here is that Jesus' words have little to do with the subject of prayer. Hear that again. Jesus' words here have little to do with the subject of prayer, but instead with how sinning Christians should be restored. In the immediate context, the two or three does not refer to a small group prayer meeting, but to the witnesses that are summoned in verse 16, where it says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So when you get back uh, to that other verse, you could say where two or three witnesses are gathered in my name, that's what it's talking about. All that Jesus says, therefore, applies to the church dealing with someone who sinned. That said, there's a great promise in these verses. And that's the assurance that Christ is spiritually present when his people are called upon to do hard things. You know, facing conflict head on is one of the hardest things we ever have to do. You know, 
Mark prayed earlier about families and our children. And in our families, many of you, many of us know what it is to have to deal with a prodigal child. And you don't want to have to be tough. And you don't want to have to enforce discipline. But you know that you have to for the sake of the child. You know that you have to for the sake of the family. It would be easier to deny it, to pretend like it's not there, but that person's life, your child's life, will be harmed, maybe destroyed, and the whole life of the family will be disrupted. Discipline is hard. And it's hard to discipline a disobedient child. And the older they get, the harder it is. But the consequences of not doing it are even greater. And it's the same in the church. We're a family. God wants us to be united. He wants us to be pure. And he doesn't say, you know, one or the other. He doesn't, he's not willing to accept or be satisfied with one out of two. The last phrase of the profession of faith, the membership vows, is to study the purity and peace of the church. Purity and peace. So he's saying, my friends, that you're accountable to one another, and especially to the elders of the church that the Lord has placed over you as spiritual shepherds who only want the good of your soul. So listen to them. They want to see you stand before the throne of grace, faultless with exceedingly great glory, and to hear the words, well done. And so when they speak to us, that quiet, passionate, prayerful, pleading work of rebuke and admonition, they do it only because they want us to be like Christ. May God help us to accept that. Now, I know this is already a long sermon, which means it's going to be longer. Because there's one last point that needs to be made regarding church discipline, and that's the context of discipline. That's the context of discipline. And the context of church discipline is church membership. The context of church discipline is church membership. There are over 30 of you who attend regularly but are not members yet. I'm begging you, please join. I think you're hurting both yourself and the church by not committing to church membership. And yes, there is no verse that says, thou shalt join the church, and there's a reason for that. Because throughout the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, belonging to the covenant community of God's people, is assumed. Let me give you some examples. Look at Hebrews 13. 13, verse 17, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Two questions immediately come up. First, if there's no biblical requirement for belonging to a local church, then which leader should an individual Christian obey and submit to? And second, and more personal, who will I as a pastor give an account for? Now regarding the first question, scriptures clearly command uh, Christians to submit to and honor elders. 
1 Timothy 5, one of many verses, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. If there's no understanding of local church membership, then who are we to submit to and obey to? Anyone with the title elder from any church? Should you as a Christian obey and submit to those loons at Westboro Baptist? In order to obey scripture, should you picket soldiers' funerals, as the pastor of Westboro seems to imply? I sure hope not. And regarding the second question, who am I to give an account for? The scriptures clearly command elders and the body of elders to care for, for specific people. We see that in Acts 20. We see it in 1 Peter 5. And why is the pastor be held accountable for all the Christians in Northern Virginia? Loudoun County? Leesburg? There are a lot of churches in this area that I have strong theological and philosophical differences with. Will I have to give an account for what they teach in their Sunday school or how they spend their money or what they do about missions? After considering questions of authority and submission, then the second issue that comes up is this very issue of the biblical teaching on church discipline I've been talking about all morning. You see it in several places, but probably most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The first 12 verses. In that text, the Apostle Paul confronts the church in Corinth for approving of a man who's walking in blatant, unrepentant sexual immorality. And the Corinthians are celebrating this as God's grace. And Paul warns them this type of wickedness shouldn't make them boast, but mourn. He calls them arrogant. And he tells them to remove this man for the destruction of his flesh and the hopeful salvation of his soul. And he pulls no punches. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 and 12, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, specifically talking about people in the church, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, my question out of this text is simple. How can you kick someone out if there is no in? If there's no local commitment to a covenant community, how do you remove someone from that community? Church discipline just doesn't work if church membership doesn't exist. We could go on and on asking questions about how to be obedient to the commands of God in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 if we're not connected to a local covenant community. When you begin to look at those texts, it becomes clear that God's plan for his church, for his people, is they would belong to a local covenant community. If you view church as some sort of take-it-or-leave-it operation, you severely limit the likelihood of your growing into spiritual maturity. Your growth and godliness can and will suffer. For instance, as I interact with others right here in my own church with you, my own laziness is exposed, as is my lack of patience and my prayerlessness and my hesitancy to confront sinners. And yet that interaction gives me the opportunity to be lovingly confronted by my brothers and sisters who are down there in the trenches with me, as well as a safe place 
to confess my sins, to repent and believe the gospel. But if church is just a place that you attend without ever joining, you might want to consider whether you're always leaving whenever your heart begins to be exposed by the Spirit, the real work's just starting to happen. What's the bottom line? You may disagree, but I strongly believe that local church membership is a question of biblical obedience, not personal preference. Please consider that prayerfully, carefully. This sermon's about church discipline, not church membership. So let me ask you, have you blown it lately? You know, as you know, we all fail in all sorts of ways. Moral failure, marital failure, parental failure, business failure, the list could go on and on and on. And the question is not whether we're going to fail. We will. We know that. But what do we do when we fail? What do we do with that failure? It's such a big question. Uh, Matt Chandler, who's a teaching pastor at the Village Church in Dallas, says the litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. The litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. We need to believe and act upon the fact that in light of God's grace, failure is never final. The implications of this gospel bottom line, it's going to affect how we deal with all of our problems, marriage or parenting issues or workplace conflict or any other area of life where we tend to fall into sin. Now, our passage this morning began by saying, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. I find it very interesting, that phrase, go and tell. You know, it's used throughout the New Testament by both Jesus and the apostles. And it's always referring to evangelism, except here. But the desired outcome is the same. When you go and tell someone the, the, the good news of the gospel, the desired outcome is that they would, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. When you share Jesus with someone, you want them to repent and believe. And when you go and tell your brother that he has sinned against you, the desired outcome is the same. You want him to repent and believe in the gospel. Go and tell, repent, and believe. And that's something we all need to do. Perhaps we should start right now. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. And in this passage, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin, and then we might see our Savior. Help us to obey this hard teaching about church discipline. And when confronted, help us to repent and believe in the gospel, for we so desperately need it. 
We need it to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Receive God's blessing. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God bless you. We'll see you next week.